0: This weekend, though, has a lot of meaning for us, uh, more than vacations and fireworks and other things, but it's an annual reminder to us of the privileges, the resources, the God-given freedoms that we do share, freedoms that should not be taken for granted. So this morning we get together, and with glad and grateful hearts, uh, I invite you to sing our songs of praise and to give thanks for our nation, for our world, and for God's loving care of each of us. So let's join me in a moment of prayer, will you? God of love, you have brought us into this uh, community uh, with people of uh, of a lot of different uh, places, from a lot of different places and a lot of different um, uh, needs and a lot of different uh, concerns this morning. Uh, And we are here today uh, to give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. So open our hearts uh, that we may see Our differences as a joyful expression of your never-ending creation, but instill in us a spirit of acceptance and understanding so that we can go from here to be Christ uh, to the nation around us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous quote by the 15th century reformer Martin Luther, which was central to Luther's view of the spiritual life. It's one simple sentence filled with meaning and he said the whole christian life is a life of repentance the whole christian life is a life of repentance now these words may seem strange to our modern ears repentance is not a concept we like to think about it implies guilt which we would rather not admit it also speaks of changing our ways and reforming our habits which is in the best of times is not easy to do And perhaps some of us have been taught that repentance only happens once, the moment you become a Christian. So why did Luther say that the whole Christian life, every part of it, is a life of repentance? Well, I can think of four answers to that question. First, a life of repentance means that sin remains a constant problem in the Christian life. Although some people would like to deny this fact, both the Bible and common sense teaches us that as long as we live in this fallen world, we will struggle with sin to one degree or another. And this point is debated in various ways in church circles, and since this is a message and not a theological paper, I don't want to get into that debate, but it seems to me that in some sense, our basic sinful nature remains a part of us, even after we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, all Christians are simultaneously made right with God, but we are still subject to sin. We are made righteous before God because of the righteousness that he bestows upon us, but our human nature is still attracted to sin. Sin is dethroned by Christ in the beginning of the Christian life, but it's not totally eradicated. Believers are not victorious over sin, whether that's known or unknown sin in this life and in the process of being made holy uh, will not be made complete until we arrive in God's presence. So the fact that sin remains an attraction for us until the day we die should not discourage us in the least. It just demonstrates our dependence on God and upon God's grace and forgiveness on a daily basis. Secondly, a life of repentance means that the only way to grow as a Christian is to take full responsibility for our actions. Now this should seem to, this seems to be an obvious statement, but unfortunately, There has risen a theology today that seems to deny personal responsibility. In its eagerness to stress our identity in Christ, it seems to downplay the reality of sin and the believer's responsibility for sin. Scripture uh, clearly shows that Christ followers must take responsibility for their thoughts and actions, and I don't believe it's helpful to say, well, that wasn't me, that wasn't my fault, when sin does occur, one writer goes as far to say that it's not our fault when we have thoughts of impurity or selfishness or covetousness. They say, these are the, not my thoughts. They are from the power of sin in our life. It's the evil one that's influencing me. But intended or not, this kind of teaching shifts responsibility for our behavior. Away from the person to this vague power of sin in our life and it misrepresents the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 7. So it's far better and far more biblical to say, you know, I sinned, and I take full responsibility for all my thoughts and my words and my deeds. I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame my friends. I can't blame my loved ones or the world around me or my human nature or the power of sin within me or even the devil. I must admit that I choose to sin and I have to confess that sin. I did it, no one else made me do it, and I need to face the consequences. Any teaching that moves us away from direct personal responsibility for sin must be resisted as less than truly biblical. Now third, a life of repentance means that even though we are saved and in Christ, our sin still brings some negative consequences that we have to face. To say, that, uh, to say this is to say that sin does have consequences. It's true for Christians and non-Christians alike. We dare not infer that because we are completely forgiven by the blood of Christ, that we are somehow freed from the consequences of our sin. Sin always brings pain and suffering. Personal sin must be taken seriously and must be admitted to honestly. Honestly. And unless we confess our sins, we're not going to prosper. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Without confession, our prayers will be hindered. Psalm sixty-six eighteen 18 says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. Without confessing our sin, we will suffer in every area of our life, personally, <clears throat> physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And then fourth, a life of repentance means that daily confession and repentance opens the door to spiritual growth. Now, these acts of the soul produce three positive benefits. First, they develop hum- a humility in us, and destroy pride that creeps into our life. Secondly, they create a deep desire in us for the grace of God. And third, they force us back to the cross for the power that we need to walk in obedience uh, with God. Now, seen in that light, Martin Luther's comments seem to make perfect sense. The whole Christian life is a, is a life of repentance. This is not a negative, but a positive, because our repentance. Forces us to go back to God's mercy for our forgiveness. Now, Abraham is a case in point. You know, sometimes uh, I said this in the first uh, message in this series, but sometimes smart people do stupid things. This is not true only of us as individuals, but also of some of the great men and women of the Bible. Although Abraham is the premier example of living faith, that does not dissolve him from doing some very foolish things. We saw it earlier in the shameful episode in which he lied about Sarah on their ill-fated trip to Egypt. That was in Genesis 13. But that wasn't the most foolish thing he ever did. The story that we find here in Genesis 16 probably is. Although God had promised Abraham a son, the years had passed and no son had been given. Verse 1 tells us that Sarah had not been able to bear children for him. So what do you do when God promises something, but the fulfillment hasn't taken place? Well, some people might give up on God, but Abraham was too strong of a believer to simply walk away from the promise. And yet Abraham is now about 85 years old, And Sarah is like 75, and both are past the normal childbearing years. So it's simply not feasible uh, to believe that a child could be born to them through the normal means. But perhaps God intended them to be creative. So Sarah is certainly up to the task. Verses 1 and 2 says, But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar... So Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. And as strange as this may sound to our modern ears, it apparently was not all that unusual in those days. This was an ancient custom to ensure the birth of a male heir. So Sarah took it upon herself to resolve the problems of her barrenness. Now, Sarah certainly gets high marks for creativity and for boldness. She also scores well for facing her problems decisively. Moreover, in Genesis 16, tells us that Abraham immediately agreed with Sarah, and when she brought Hagar to him, he slept with her. Now, that raises an interesting question for me. Why did Abraham agree to Sarah's scheme? Maybe because he wasn't getting any younger, God didn't seem to be moving very fast. God had had not told them who the mother of the promised child would be, and this was a common practice in that culture, and it was Sarah's idea. And as a husband, I'm sure the last reason weighed pretty heavily on his mind. What man wouldn't want to make his wife happy by giving her a child? And if he couldn't do it through the normal biological means, perhaps her suggestion would work out perfectly. I don't know if Abraham would have ever considered going to Hagar on his own or not, but Sarah suggested it, and the rest is history. Now, there's more that needs to be said, but let's stop at this point and say clearly that Abraham is no longer living by faith. Both he and Sarah have decided to help God out by concocting this elaborate scheme. But the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that we should walk by faith, and not by sight. Or we could say faith is living without scheming. So how do, you, how do we know when we're walking by faith? Well, there are four signs. We're, we're willing to wait for God. We're concerned more for the glory of God than for ourselves. We're obeying God's word, and we have a deep peace and joy within ourselves when we are in the center of God's will. And Abraham and Sarah failed on all four counts. Now, at first, it may have seemed that their plan was working, but in the end, whatever we do on our own usually turns out bad, doesn't it? Eventually, it doesn't turn out as well as we hoped. Scottish novelist George MacDonald put it this way. He said, in whatever a person does without God, they must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Abraham is about to miserably succeed. Hagar is now uh, pregnant, and immediately she begins to despise Sarah. And who can blame her? After all, it's clear that Sarah is merely using her to get a baby for her husband. In the first place, the very act that brought this child into existence drives a wedge between the husband and the wife, Abraham and Sarah. Was it adultery? Yes. Even though it took place at Sarah's instigation... No husband can sleep with another man's wife without driving a stake in the heart of their own marriage. So now Abraham has a problem on his hands. He's got an unhappy pregnant maidservant, and things are just about to get worse. He and Sarah's clever plan begins to blow up in their face, and during the long months of pregnancy, every relationship in this family begins to unravel. Hagar despises Sarah, Sarah mistreats Hagar, Sarah blames Abraham, and Abraham kind of throws in the towel. Nothing good is going to happen. Talk about a dysfunctional family situation. But note this, this happened because of the deliberate scheming of a husband and wife who couldn't and wouldn't wait for God. Because they felt they had to take matters in their own hands, Hagar, who was basically an innocent bystander when all of this happened, when all of this started, and Sarah, they can't stand each other, and now Abraham is caught in the middle between two very angry and jealous women. Now let's stop again for a moment and ask a simple question. What's wrong here? There are a lot of answers to that question. Is Sarah... Is it Sarah uh, who's in the wrong for dreaming up this bad idea in the first place? Or is it Abraham for going along with it? Or is it both of them for not trusting God? Is it Hagar for despising her mistress? Or is it Sarah for mistreating Hagar? Or is it Abraham for trying to wash his hands of the whole affair? Maybe it's Hagar for running away. Or maybe it's all of the above. See, there's plenty of blame to go around on all sides. Everyone is guilty of something here, but the greatest sin is Abraham's. He's the head of the family, and God has spoken directly to him, and he could have and should have said no in the first place. No one made him sleep with Hagar. Now consider the words of Scripture in Numbers chapter 32. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. Or Galatians 6, 7, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Or Proverbs 13, uh, fourteen twelve. there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. The chickens are now coming home to roost. Abraham and Sarah made a bad decision that is about to blow up in their faces. Sleeping with Hagar was not God's will, waiting for the promised child was God's will, but a child has been conceived, and there's more trouble to come. In Genesis 16, we discover a whirl of truth about God's character. Hagar has been used and abused by Abraham and Sarah. In desperation, she flees out into the desert, and all the while, she's carrying Abraham's child in her body. And alone out there with her fear and her anger, she encounters a divine visitor. It's an angel of the Lord. Now, it's worth noting that the angel of the Lord finds her, not the other way around. This is yet one more picture of God's grace reaching out to a person in need. When the angel asks her where she's going, Hagar blurts out the truth. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sari. Now, at this point, the story takes a surprising turn. We might expect the angel to kind of commiserate with her and assure her of God's protection as she's out there wandering around in the desert, but instead the angel gives her some instructions that must have been difficult for her to hear. The angel said, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. There are many reasons why Hagar might have disobeyed that command, perhaps a fear Of further mistreatment the unresolved anger toward abraham Uh, she had no desire to submit to an unkind person maybe even some doubt that she was that this was god's will for her life to make matters worse the angel gives no explanation just go either you obey or you don't you know god's will is often like that for us Sometimes the Lord leads us to make decisions that in the short run at least involve personal pain and suffering Sometimes God says stay even when we'd rather go sometimes God says go when we'd rather stay put But if we disobey things only get worse Then the angel offers a prophecy about Ishmael in verses 11 and 12 angel said, uh, here it says, "'You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. "'You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, "'for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. "'The son of yours will be a wild man, an, uh, "'as untamed as a wild donkey. "'He will raise his fist against everyone, "'and everyone will be against him. "'Yes, he will live in open hostility "'against all his relatives.'" Now, I want you to focus on the phrase, Ishmael will be as untamed as a wild donkey. This is not a compliment. From the angel's words, we can sketch a brief portrait of who Ishmael will be. He'll be independent, he'll be rough, he'll be prone to fight, he'll be a troublemaker, he'll be filled with anger. He is not going to be voted most popular by his graduating class. Instead, he might be voted most likely to go to prison, But his very name means God hears. And it's important to know that to this very day, there are essentially two bloodlines in the Middle East, the descendants of Isaac, the Hebrew nation, and the descendants of Ishmael, all the Arab nations. And these two still struggle against each other after 4,000 years. Now, at this point in the story, uh, Hagar does something few people have ever done. She gives God a name. She calls him El Roy. You are the God who sees me. She also said, I have, have I truly uh, seen the one who sees me? He is a personal God who attentively watches over all of his children all the time. And in this case, it's a reminder that even though she's out of Abraham's sight, God has never not taken his eyes off of her and God can be trusted, even out in the desert. The final two verses tell us that Hagar went home to give birth to Ishmael. And this speaks volumes, I think, about her faith in God. Why would she dare go back after Sarah had mistreated her? Because she believed that she could trust God in spite of her circumstances. She concluded that God's goodness outweighed Sarah's hostility. And she knew that if God had called her to do this, God would take care of her. You know, you've heard it said before, but I'll say it again, the safest place for a Christ follower to be is in the center of God's will. Strange as it may seem, it was safe for Hagar to be under Sarah's cruel mistreatment and be in the center of God's will rather than being out on her own, out of God's will. And I remind you that she had no guarantees as to how Sarah would treat her, perhaps the mistreatment and the snide comments, and all of that would continue for years, and I tend to think they probably did. Human nature being what it is, it's easy to believe that Sarah's deep, deep jealousy would continually provoke conflict. But here's a simple application to think about. We never... We never solve life's problems by running away from them. Most of us have tried that route at one time or another, but it never works out. Most of the time, growth comes only as we face our problems head on. Now, I find it instructive that Sarah and Abraham took her back, and I'm sure Abraham wanted to do that. After all, she was carrying his child, and I'm just as sure that Sarah probably didn't. Nevertheless, they took her in, Uh, Did God have time for this poor servant? Did God care about this slave girl's baby? Would the God of Israel care for this Egyptian slave girl? Yes, yes, and yes. Hagar's presence was a stinging rebuke to both Abraham and Sarah for their sin. They couldn't look at her without being reminded of their folly, of their scheming. Uh, and, And we remember Luther's words, the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. Even the name Ishmael served as a constant voice from the past, reminding them that God had heard the cries of this despised servant girl. Abraham and Sarah would wait and then suffer the consequences of their sinful impatience. More than that, the world still suffers because of their impatience as the nations of the Middle East, which are descendants of either Ishmael or Isaac, quarrel with each other to this very day. Psalm 2714 reminds us, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. And then the psalmist says it again. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. It's worth waiting for God's will. It's worth waiting for God's best. The most important thing is to follow the Lord, first and foremost, whatever his plan includes. The name Ishmael means God hears. The name Elroy means the God who sees. Both of those are a rebuke to Sarah, but a comfort to Hagar. God hears our words, and he sees our hearts. And even though Isaac was the son of the promise, God also loved Ishmael, and his eyes were watching over Hagar out in the wilderness. Psalm 139, verse 7, is a great psalm, and I love the words of the psalmist. David says, you know, I can never escape from your spirit, I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, God, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. You see, we cannot escape God's presence because as soon as we get to our destination, we find out that God's already there waiting for us. In our focus on Abraham and Sarah, it's kind of easy to forget about Hagar. She was a leftover, and so was Ishmael. Sarah didn't want her around. Abraham couldn't afford to keep her around, so off they went again out into the desert, ultimately rejected. Yet God spoke to Hagar and blessed Ishmael. This is a great truth. God reveals Himself to the leftovers of this world. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27, St. Paul tells us that God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. We like strength, but God chooses weakness. We like wisdom, but God blesses the foolish things of this world. See, God loves the Hagar's of this world. Now I know that we've made God's care for Hagar sound almost too good to be true this morning. How do these words apply maybe to a situation in our own culture, a situation of a single mother struggling to raise her children without help from the Father? And my response to that is simply twofold. Because God loves the underdogs of this world, God enlarges our capacity so that we can do more with less, like the miracle of the bottomless pitcher of oil in 2 Kings. And secondly, the Bible tells us that God reveals himself in a very special way to orphans and to widows and to the poor and to the needy and to the homeless and to the hurting. And often, these are folks that see a side of God that people who are comfortable never see. So as we come to the end of this amazing chapter Let's use the words of Romans chapter 5 verse 20 as a fitting summary. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Abraham and Sarah paid dearly for their foolish mistake. For Hagar, humiliation was followed by blessing from God. And years later, Isaac, the true son of the promise, would be born. But in this story, there is both warning and hope combined. Detours do not mean dead ends. God sees and God hears us. And those who wait for God will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, our hearts go out to Hagar. This morning, she suffered. Slavery and jealousy and mistreatment, and yet you saw her and you had a plan for her life. Lord, you have a plan for our lives too, for the lives of our brothers and sisters here this morning. Help us to be willing to submit to whatever situation you call us to. And let us not be too inflexible or too proud to walk the path that you've set before us. Help us, God, to follow Hagar's example of obedience to you.